Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. as we go to 2 Peter at 20,000 feet. Some of you are old enough to know now as uh, you have children, as they grow older, your relationship with your children changed, does it not? The way that you parent your children as they grow older change. There's that point where you do all things for them. You're directing them. You're, 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 you're leading them. And then there comes a time when you allow them to have more responsibility, more privileges. You give them a little bit more freedom. And eventually your children get such to an age where all of a sudden you're not so much as a parent as you are a coach. Someone who just coaches them or someone who advises them as you continue to go on. That is always changing. But have you ever thought, in the time that you have, what would be the last words you would want to give your children? What would be the last words, the last words of encouragement, of comfort, or or warning, or challenge would you give your children? If you knew that it was your last day, what would you tell them? What would you want them to remind them of, of all that you've taught them over the years? From time to time, we'll see videos or blogs or other types of stories of someone who is, knows that their time is near and they do something special to leave with their children. Well, that's kind of what we're getting here when we go to 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, we have Peter's farewell letter. It was written about 67 to 68 AD, several years after his first letter that we looked at last year. It is believed that Peter is writing now from prison during the reign of Nero, the Caesar of Rome, and he knows that his death is near. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Peter. We're going to look at different scriptures today. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 13. Peter writes, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter here is referring to Jesus' prophecy that was found in John chapter 21. Where after the resurrection Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly I say to you, when you were young you used to dress yourself up and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And carry you off where you do not want to go. And in parentheses, John puts this editorial note from the Holy Spirit. This he said to show by what kind of death that Peter was to glorify God. That time is near. Peter understands that and he wants to give a last word in to these people that he loves. The original recipients of this letter seem to be the churches of Asia Minor, probably the same group as as in 1 Peter. As we read, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And you might recall from from his previous letter that is written to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithma. And if you might remember, it's it's that Asia Minor, that where Turkey kind of is, that area there. The theme that, uh, that 1 Peter was dealing with in his first letter 
was the suffering and opposition that came from outside of the community. Remember, it was how to live in a world that was hostile to your faith, understanding or facing persecution because of your faith. While the theme of 2 Peter is dealing with suffering and opposition that comes from inside the community of the church. In the first letter, Peter writes to encourage and comfort, while his second letter is full of urgent and stern warnings. The danger that Peter is addressing in his second letter is apostasy, that of falling away from God and from the truth. The false teachers were creeping in and causing havoc within the church early in its history. He charges the false teachers are those that are ignorant and unstable, who twist scriptures to their own destructions. To combat this danger, one pastor notes that Peter is urging his readers to continue to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. And knowledge is going to be a key word. It's a word that's used quite a bit here in 2 Peter. And he's not writing, though, of academic knowledge, of understanding of facts and, and being able to, to, to uh, uh, learn more and more. But he's talking about spiritual knowledge, a knowledge that arises from a growing experience of knowing and understanding and serving God. Peter writes that knowledge of who God is and experience of God will produce peace and grace, that it will produce faithfulness. It's the secret to freedom from defilement. And it's the sphere of spiritual growth. This knowledge serves to combat those ignorant false teachers who were twisting scriptures to suit their own agenda. Interestingly here, Peter is not going to address the actual teachings of the false teachers. If you and I were to write this, we would say, well, here's the list of all the false teachings that was in the church. But Peter's not going to do that for the most part. Actually, what he's going to show here is actually describe their behavior and their character. He says, these people who are false teachers are someone you can recognize, not so much by their doctrine, but, but actually by their actions. He says they'll renounce the lordship of Christ. They'll be haughty in, in their attitude. They'll be, they'll be people who disregard moral restraints. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says they'll be adulterous. In chapter 14, he says they're greedy. He goes on to say they will be boasters. And they'll be people who are under, unrestrained by convention or morality. In other words, they'll have the, the mantra of, if it feels good, just do it. Remember that from the 60s and the 70s? Or, you know what, it's all right to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Or live and let live. This brings up a good question I think that many people are asking today, mainly when it comes to our political leaders. Does character matter? Does how one lived their life, does it matter as long as they have their, their everything, their Q's and T's all matching up? Well, I would say yes, it does. It does. Peter is pointing out that you can identify a false teacher simply by their behavior and character. Jesus himself taught that a tree is known by its fruit. Proverbs teaches us that even a child is known by his actions. Peter wants them to be on their guard against false teachers. They're to look out for those who proclaim to be followers of Christ, but their lives do not match up. In addition to his warnings about false teacher, Peter 
before his death takes time to stress the importance of the inspiration of scripture as we look at this letter. In chapter 3, he's going to stress the doctrine of the personal return of Christ and how important that is. And again, at the end of the book, he'll make an appeal to holy living in light of the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. So Peter, as he's coming near the end of his life, says, I want to bring to remembrance these things that we have taught you from the beginning. And in these three short verses or chapters, and you can read through this book very, very quickly, you'll see these things that Peter says, remember these, these are important for you. He's because very soon false teachers will come in and begin to wreak havoc in the church. So Peter, knowing that the, that the, nearing, of the, of the, of the, the nearing the end of his earthly ministry, he desires to instruct and to encourage believers to protect themselves and their churches from those who seek to destroy the church from within. So we mentioned before, Peter insists that knowledge is going to be the key to combat all the different heresies and the unscriptural teachings of these false teachers. The Apostle Paul would warn his protege, Timothy, that there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now we think of that time as now, but that time was even then. Even still, we find people wandering off. Peter goes on to tell Timothy to mentor his disciples carefully, making sure not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Remember that speculation. We live in an age in which speculation is something that is endearing to people. Lastly, he tells Timothy to protect himself from this tendency to wander from the truth and have nothing to do with irrelevant silly myths. Rather, he says, train yourself in godliness. Why? Because the lack of godliness is a sign of a false teacher. It's a sign of false teaching. In this second letter of Peter, he's going to encourage his readers that the way to fight off the damaging teachings is to be certain in the face of doubt that may arise. We live in an age where, where doubt and certainty is something that's to be, be, to be embraced. You've heard me say, though, many times that Satan's main tool to attack Christians is doubt. Just as he did in the garden with Eve and he did with Jesus in the desert, Satan lies to insert doubt and uncertainty into the believer's mind. He wants us to doubt God's word, God's goodness, and God's love, and God's promises. He was successful with Adam, but yet he failed miserably with Jesus, who leaned on the word of God to combat Satan. Today, Satan still works unceasingly to cause the believer to doubt God. He tries to use various trials and temptation and troubles to lead a follower of Christ to doubt the promises of God. You understand this? You recognize this in your own life. He even employs men and women to impersonate teachers to distract us from the truth of God's word. Paul, in his second letter to the church of Corinth, it's here on the screen, warns us, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, you know, I could take some time and just start listing a whole bunch of false teachers. You know, and I, I want to be careful in doing that. But there will be time from this pulpit and from our, from our different venues that we have. We will share with you those types of things as we go through 2 Peter. For there is much that is going in the church now that is just deadly to God's people and God's church. Satan has been very successful in his campaign to infect churches of all denominations, liturgies, sizes, and affiliations with pastors and teachers, and even those who profess Christ that are actually soul sick with doubt and uncertainty. Maybe even you here today, you're stuck with doubt and uncertainty on the promises of Christ. Does God's word truly mean that? Is that really what God's word says? Is God's word still relevant today? Are there some truths and some principles that we can throw out because things are different today? (coughs) The The culture's anthem today is to question, to doubt, and be skeptical about everything. The world calls out for everyone to live out your own truth whether it's about God or scriptures, about who Jesus is, about the church, about marriage, about gender, or even the value of human beings or the color of the sky, everything is to be doubted and called into question. Desiring to unshackle themselves from the truths and norms of previous generations, they find themselves enslaved to untruths, speculation, and outright lies. We ourselves find ourselves in the first century with Second Peter. However, the disciples of Jesus are not to be enamored or enslaved with this called uncertainty and doubt. We are not to hear that call of the world to doubt and be uncertain about the word of God. Jesus promised in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. We find so many people tied up in knots with doubt and uncertainty. This church itself suffers from that. We have people that we love and care about that are now uncertain of what scripture says, doubting the word of God, and struggling with that. And we ought to open up our arms and our hearts to embrace them, to stand with them and help them to learn. For there are many false teachers and false prophets out there that are willing to tell you whatever you want to hear. I shouldn't say this. This goes beyond the scope of my message, but it's just too much. I can't handle it. It's just burning a, a hole in my mind. As I'm reading Twitter and the internet, And reading that now there is a new church. And, you know, I'm not going to say the church today. We'll get to it when it gets there. And and by the way, there is some pastor's friend, uh, Pastor Tony Woods and Costi Hinn. Many of you men know both of them uh, from our sister church of Mission Bible. They got a new book called Defining, no, Defining Deception. And I recommend it. I want to make sure that we get some copies here for you uh, to purchase here. 
and it exposes what's going on there. But there is a church that does everything from grave sucking in which you get onto the, the grave of some great Christian, you lay on it and you suck out all their spiritual power. They, they, they do things of, 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 of now it's Christian tarot cards, but they won't call it tarot cards, it's destiny cards, in which, is, in which they tell you and they read you your, your, your spiritual prophecy. There's others who are now running around naked, topless, because they're trying to win people for Christ as they beat on drums. And then to, yesterday I read that there is a woman who is using her spiritual gift of arts to create destiny pants. Yes, you too can own a pants of destiny that will embrace the more presence of God as you wear her pants. I just don't get this stuff. We laugh, but there are hundreds and thousands of people who are falsely tied into this. And we as a church had to be careful because tell you what, this church, we were singing their music that they wrote and that they travel. That's how they infil infiltrate churches through, through their music, through the radio. Some of you like their songs and you know what? Their songs are good and catchy. But then when you read what they're about, you're just like, you gotta be kidding me. But their lives and their message, it's just damaging to the church. I'm indebted, you and I are indebted to Pastor Mark Dever. He's a pastor in Capitol Hills. And in studying this message, I read he did a, a whole one message on 2 Peter. And he did such a good job, I didn't want to enter, uh, you know, I didn't even want to invent the, the, reinvent the wheel. So I'm just going to look at what he's talking about here. He lists four ways that Christians can be certain in a world that is not only hostile to our faith, but also to when our churches are infiltrated by the enemy. And we're just going to go through these very quickly. Number one, he says, you need to be certain of your call. That's what Peter said. Be certain of your call. Peter notes that it is God who calls us to salvation. It is not self-generated, it is not self-based, and it's not self-sustained. In the same vein, it is God who calls on us first, not us who call on God. Pastor Dever notes that contrary to the thoughts and teaching of many today, is that when God calls us, He's chosen us, He has justified us, He now also sanctifies us. In other words, living as a Christian helps me to know that I am a Christian. He wants to be certain of your call. And as we go through 2 Peter, we're going to look at some things that Peter says, is this match up? If your life, you should be adding these virtues. These qualities ought to be evident in your life. And not only evident, but also increasing. We'll look at that as the weeks go on. Be certain of your call. That's how you fight doubts. The second one is to be certain of the truth. Peter in this first chapter writes that his testimony is factual and from God himself. It's not from his own imagination. In other words, he writes that scripture is to be treasured and prized by God's people. It is God's special revelation to his children. He has called us to embrace his truth and let the Bible inform our worldview. Let me tell you, be careful of any pastor or teacher or church who does away with scripture. Number three, he writes that you need to be certain that false teachers will give, <coughs> excuse me, false assurances. 
Though they may be persuasive and charismatic and even knowledgeable, he describes the character of the false teachers so that they may be recognized. We will be able to know them by their fruits. They are spiritually confident, yet their lives are regularly carnal. He also points out that the outcome of their false message and ministry can be discerned. Look with me on Matthew chapter 7. It's here on, or no, please turn to it in Matthew chapter 7. This echoes the teaching that Peter received from Jesus in his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, famous portion of scripture, look at verse 15. Jesus told his disciples, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every, in verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. We understand this. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, he says in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. They will give false assurances. They may say they are of Christ, but their lies will show that they are not. And you can hold there to the scripture. We're going to look at the rest of it in a moment. As Mark Dever says, be certain, number four, that God will judge the world. Be certain that God will judge the world. Though it may seem like uncertainty and doubt are winning the day, churches are filled with false confessions and the pulpits are armed with false teachers. You and I must not despair, but trust that one day Jesus will return and bring all things into judgment. I can't tell you how many times as I see these churches and I see these churches that you know have false teaching, you see, why are they so popular? Why do they grow? As I read Facebook and sometimes I see Christian brothers and sisters, sometimes even from here, and I read some things, I'm thinking these are from false teachers. You just sometimes want to just give up. But he says, do not despair. For Jesus goes on. To say that one day he will return and he will bring all things into judgment. These pastors, these churches will one day stand in judgment for their false teaching. In Matthew chapter 7, we were just there. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophet, did we not prophesy in your name? Excuse me. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus doesn't, doesn't distract that or just dispute that. Yes, you might have done that. But he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, with that introduction summary, I want us to delve into the opening of 2 Peter with the first two verses. He says, I've got some things that I need to remind you of. Things that you have been taught that you need to hold on to. He, he, like a good teacher, knows that like most people, once we're taught something, like a good parent knows that he has to remind his children, remind his students, have them recall these things, especially as we know that our influence is waning and we may never be there or we may no longer be there. He wants to remind him of these things. Be certain. Fight the doubt that Satan comes. He starts here then in 2 Peter chapter 1 with his introduction. Join with me as we read. It's here on the screen or in your Bible. 
where he writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus, our Lord. Father, as we continue with this message, Lord, I'm struggling just a, a tad. So help me, Father, as we just slow down, as we consider your word. Lord, let your word be preeminent. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign. Father, give us wisdom to understand the certainty and doubt that faces us. Let's be honest with the ways that we doubt. For Father, there are many times we will be doubting and uncertain. Father, that's part of the growing process. But let us not fall into the trap that it leads us into despair or the fact that we may never attain to your true knowledge. Father, just be with us this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Peter begins by introducing himself and combining his Hebrew name with the name given to him by Jesus. You might see his name as Simeon Peter. That may sound odd because we usually think of Simon Peter. They're both the same, just different translations from Greek to the Hebrew. But right away, Peter lists his qualifications. He says, I'm Simeon Peter, and he says, I am a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This word for servant here means slave. The term of a slave or servant, though, in Scripture is not something that is something shameful, but it actually designates both humility and honor. It's used to describe Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses and Samuel, and even King David in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's used to describe not only Peter, but Paul and James and Jude. Peter is identifying himself first as a slave of Jesus, understanding that all followers, even you and I today, are not our own, but we have been bought with the price, and that we have willingly denied ourselves and taken up Christ's cross. So he identifies himself as a servant of Christ. I am a slave of Christ. Let that be known first and foremost. Secondly, he identifies himself then as an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means messenger. As an apostle in scripture is one who has served under the ministry of Jesus and ordained into the ministry by him. Before his betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus appointed 12 men. In Mark chapter 3, we read that Christ appointed 12 men whom he named apostles so that they may be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Mark goes on to note that Jesus appointed Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. So this is a high title. This is something that is very highly regarded, appointed by Jesus himself. The gospel always lists Peter as the first of all apostles. He has a high regard in that matter. He played a major role in the early church and introduced the gospel first to the Gentiles. It was Peter, who you and I understand was who first confessed Jesus as you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, would serve as the foundation of the church. It was the source of our salvation and it's the proclamation of the gospel. It is in this confession you and I find our truth and our unity. This confession serves to combat the doubt that Satan seeds his lies with. 
That is why Paul would declare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that you and I destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, the Son of the living God. What is amazing about Peter's introduction, though, is not his qualification of saying, I'm also, I'm, I'm at one hand, I'm a slave, but yet I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's not the major thing that I find here. We're all aware of that. But what he tells the elect exiles, these people off the beaten path, he says, you're actually of equal status of me. Look what he writes. Peter writes, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Peter is meaning to encourage them that one Christian, even an apostle of the first order, is saved like the others. These are great words, especially to a group of Christians and churches that are mainly Gentile in population and outside the beaten path of Jerusalem. Through his introduction, Peter is confirming what Paul states in his letter to the church of Rome. There is no distinction between the Jew and Greek, for it's the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name Lord will be saved. Paul would write to the church of Galatia that's in that area. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is a wonderful promise. And this means that you and I have a unity. It doesn't matter if I'm a pastor, or if Dustin is a seminary student or someone else has a Bible degree. It means that we are one faith. One Lord, one baptism. That's what the communion shares and demonstrates. That you and I are all Christians together. But I want to take a moment to speak about the phrase obtained by faith. That word obtained connotes a practice of acquiring something through the casting of lots in an original language. Now you might recall that both the Old Testament and New Testament write of casting lots. It was a way to make difficult decisions to settle disputes or divide something that was in short supply. Matthew records that the Roman soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments by casting lots. That could be the way in which they're taking some sticks and they're rolling them and casting them out. It could be dice. It could be picking sticks the old-fashioned way. To some cultures, this was just a game of chance or a device to try to make a decision fairly. We see it done every Sunday during every Friday night football game when they flip a coin or even just this past week when one state chose to use a coin flip to determine who their senator would be because the election wound up being a tie. However, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, using lots was a considered a way for Yahweh, for God, to sovereignly choose. Proverbs 16.33 states that the lot is cast into the lap, talking about dice, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This undergirds the truth that there are no accidents, there is no coincidences, there is no chance, and there is no luck. God determines all things, even the flip of a coin. What Peter is saying by using this term is that salvation is not something that they have earned, that they have merited or chosen from themselves, 
but it's a gift from God. It's almost as if they were cast lots and they were a winner. Paul would write in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You and I are chosen by God by his great mercy. Not only have they been chosen by God, not only have they have been winners being by chosen, they have attained equal standing with the apostles. He says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior. Just as Paul writes, not a result of works, so that no man may boast, Peter is reminding them they're not saved by their own merit or righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus. It is Jesus' perfect obedience that has justified us, that has made us right with God. Our faith is rooted in God's saving righteousness. The fact that God accepted the sacrifice and works of Jesus to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy the penalty of our sin, and to satisfy the requirement of the law for you and I to be perfect. The source of God's saving righteousness, he says, is Jesus. And so that there is no mistake of who Peter thought Jesus was, he writes that Jesus is our God and Savior. He's not speaking of two different persons there, but that Jesus is God. Jesus is both God and our Savior. And so you and I have attained a gift that is not of our own doing. It's not of works, but one that God has merciful given to us. And it's not by our own works, but that which is done by someone else. In verse 2, Peter writes, as we close out this part, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, our Lord. Now this is similar to the greeting in this first letter when he also wished them grace and peace. Now grace and peace is something that you and I want for our children, for our loved ones, for our family. Even the world wants grace and peace to be multiplied. The world cries out for tolerance and acceptance and for affirmation for all ideas, desires, and worldviews. Why? Because they want grace to be given to everyone and they want peace. If we just tolerate all things, then there will be nothing to fight about. However, it is this very call for tolerance that in reality is no tolerance at all, but does harm to the true grace and peace that comes from God. Peter understands that grace and peace does not come in an accepting and affirming non-truths or worldview that directly opposes the will of God. No, Peter writes that grace and peace comes to the knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is and that who you and I are. Until you get that, you will not understand or experience grace and peace. You can experience a fleeting uh, moments of happiness, but not truly grace and peace. Further in his letter, Peter will write that the grace and peace comes through the knowledge of Christ, through the knowledge of scripture, through pursuing holy living and living in light of the future judgment. You and I, listen, we cannot abandon the truth and revelation of Scripture and expect to enjoy the grace and peace of God. It is sad to say that even if the people of Iran who are protesting their government today, if they were able to throw off the shackles of their political and religious leaders but not replace it with the truths found in Scripture, they will not be any better off. It's sad to say. To replace one man's system with another man's and ignore the truth of scriptures will not give you grace and peace. 
And there are too many people that have listened to the, the preaching of tolerance and acceptance of all things so that there may be grace and peace but find themselves uh, abandoning all scripture truths. And what they find is not true tolerance or true grace and peace, but ignorant bliss. And that's not what God has called us to. So in review, Peter is nearing the end of his life and he desires to impact some sound advice, a warning and a word of encouragement to his children. Peter's desire in this letter was to make every effort so that after his departure, that you, speaking of his people, may be at any time able to recall these things. He wanted them to have confidence in God, to remember the teachings of Peter, the teachings of Paul and of Scripture. Have confidence in God. Peter's second letter, I would tell you this morning, is just as important today as it was to the original readers. You and I, too, live in a time where false teachers are prominent and plentiful. They are more subtle. They use social media. They're more friendly in that way. They are more technical savvy, yet they are still very dangerous. It is important for you and I as a church to be on guard. We need to have elders who are actively protecting the flock. We need believers who are, who are pursuing holiness and we should be sharing the gospel of grace and peace. You and I must remember that the church is the bride of Christ and that you and I are to remain pure and faithful to the one who has called and chosen us. If I were to put one word, I would say 2 Peter. Peter is telling you to remember, to recall the things that you have been taught. We too, like this first century church, are susceptible to doubt and uncertainty, just like the world. Satan is relentless in his attacks against the children of God in his church. In 1946, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, a British theologian, he preached a sermon on this same passage that I did this morning. If you look at the mirror, in, on, on the monitor, look what he writes. The first thing that is necessary at the present time is that Christian people should be certain of their position. 76 years ago, uh, he said the same thing. At this present time, we need to be certain of our position. To accomplish that, he said, you and I need to be needed constant reminders of the danger of doubt and uncertainty especially in the regard to truth and the doctrine of God. You might recall that Peter encouraged his readers to remember the truth that you and I as Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you and I may be able to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is what we have been called to do. You and I cannot do that if we're filled with doubt and uncertainty. If we forget the great mercies of God if we live our life as those in the world, there's no way. We will be like Lot. And he uses him as an example. Lot, the man who went to live in Sodom. 
He was a righteous man, Peter will say. And it was hard on him to live in that culture. He said that culture was so bad and so terrible and it hurt his conscience to live with them. And you may recall that when God sent the angels to Sodom to warn them about the judgment to come, that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that Lot went to his children and to his children's uh, son-in-laws, his daughter's son-in-laws, and tried to warn them. And you know what their response was? Does anyone remember? They laughed at him. They laughed at him. You and I need to live differently in this world. You and I need to remember what God has called us to. Martin Lord Jones went on to note that the main problem today, at this moment, 76 years ago, he writes, the problem at the moment, he says, is the church herself. And I will say that 76 years later, that that's still the problem, is the church herself. He writes that the world is always sinful. It is the church that is to be the law, light and salt that bears truth. So I will say to us this morning, let us remember the gospel. The good news is timeless, it is powerful, and it is unchanging. I would challenge you this morning, would you embrace it? Would you guard it? And would you share it? their head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like for us to just take a moment as the worship team makes its way up. I believe God wants you to understand this morning the importance of guarding your heart, of defending the truth and protecting the purity of the church in your life. You and I must not allow false teachers to infiltrate God's assembly, infecting the body of Christ with doubt and uncertainty. God wants us to believe that he has accepted the sacrifice and obedience of Jesus to pay for the penalty of sin, to destroy the power of sin, and to one day deliver, deliver us from the presence of sin. And until then, you and I are to trust in the faithfulness of God. I would challenge you this morning that God wants you to desire his grace and peace more than anything that the world has to offer. It is not time for you and I to capitulate to the world so that we can live at peace with the world. He wants you to desire his truth and his revelation. Then lastly, God wants you to embrace the truth of the cross. And dear Christian, he wants you to pursue holiness. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be encouraging to one another and to rest in his great promises. Would you do so? this morning. Would you take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond to the Holy Spirit's work this morning? God, you're so good to us. We do not deserve your salvation, but being rich in mercy, you have chosen us Father, we recognize it's not of our own merit, but that of Christ. We thank you for that. Our response to that wonderful gift is to follow you, to live lives of holiness, to pursue it with all that we have, to be confident in your word, to recall your promises, to remember your goodness.
Help us to do so this week. Father, help us to be on guard, to be alert for those false teachers and false teachings. Father, that infiltrate us through ways many times that we're not aware of, through music, through social media, through books, and even through charismatic teachings. Father, let us trust you. Let us see your goodness in all things. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.